Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. In his path-clearing new book, Parables of Coercion, Conversion and Knowledge at the End of Islamic Spain, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015, Seth Kimmel, Assistant Professor of Latin American and Iberian Cultures at Columbia University, presents a fascinating account of how conversion from Islam to Christianity was imagined, debated, and contested in early modern Spain. Shifting the focus from the experiences of the converts to intellectual discussions and disputes on matters such as coercion and assimilation, Kimmel demonstrates that such discussions were intimately tied to not only questions of religious reform, but also to the demarcation of varied scholarly disciplines within Christianity. It is this nexus of knowledge, religious reform, and conversion that this book brilliantly explores and uncovers. Questioning binaries such as tolerance, intolerance, and religious secular, Kimmel highlights the complex material, intellectual, and political conditions and considerations that informed scholarly engagements with the questions and puzzles of religious conversion in early modern Spain. In our conversation, we talked about the major themes and arguments of the book and its striking relevance to discourses on religious tolerance in the present. Parables of Coercion is at once beautifully written and unusually multi-layered for a first book. It will also make an excellent choice for courses on Muslim-Christian relations, early modern religion, religious conversion, secularism, and on Islamic Spain. Here now is my conversation with Professor Seth Kimmel. Hello, Seth. How are you doing? Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, very good, Seth. Uh, you know, as I was saying before we went uh, live, uh, such a pleasure reading this book. Uh, as I said to you, the word multi-layered is really the one that comes to mind. There is such layers of analysis that go into this book and does not really read like a first book. Uh, so congratulations on such a wonderful book. Look forward to talking to you. And there is a tradition that we have on new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, and uh, the question is, Seth, could you share with our listeners a bit how did, did you become a scholar uh, interested in Islam and, you know, uh, Spain and so on? And secondly, uh, tell us a bit about how you came to write this particular book. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. First off, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for thanks for the compliment. I'm glad you found something useful and enjoyable in, in reading this book. Um, I first became interested in religious studies, history of Islam and Muslim societies, I'd say, as early as my undergraduate days. Um, I, I studied comparative literature as an undergrad and a grad student, actually. Um, but I actually majored in, in uh, I minored in religious studies. So I've had a kind of longstanding interest in the history of religion. Um, and when I decided to go to grad school in Compilate, um, I always knew that I'd be sort of Spain-focused, um, both because of my, my, my interest in early modern Spanish literature, and because I knew that it was a, you know, it, when you when you study complete, it's a, 
you always have to have your foot in one of the national literature departments. And for me, it made sense to be in Spanish and Portuguese. Um, but I had this kind of nagging, uh, this nagging feeling that I still wanted to do something with, with religion. Um, and as I started to get into medieval and early modern Spanish literature a little more deeply, I started to realize that there really were lots of wonderful connections um, to the to the wider Mediterranean, to the Arab world, um, and and it actually started. I, I was I was trying to write a paper on uh, this text called Kalila Wadimna, which is a it's kind of a, a mirror for princes text. It's an allegorical story about animal stories that come that are introduced into the European context via the Arab translations of originally. Uh, Sanskrit text. And as I was trying to write this paper, I just realized that I really needed to know Arabic in order to write the paper the way I wanted to. This is as a grad student. Um, and my professors, you know, in conflict, we had a lot of flexibility to kind of shape our own uh, intellectual trajectory. And everybody was really supportive of st- st- starting Arabic, even though it was a little late in the game for me. Um, and as I started to do that, I realized that... Um, that many of the Hispanists who study Islam and who study Arabic literature, Arabic literary history, um, were using uh, were using their Arabic knowledge and using that comparative context in order to transform their own fields. So, which is to say that for a very long time, Spanish studies, let's call it, and um, Arabic literary studies were totally separate. Um, and even if you were studying Al-Andalus, if you were studying Iberian Peninsular text written in Arabic, you very rarely did it in a, in a Spanish department. Um, and that started to change. I was reading, you know, people like Maria Rosa Menocal, Américo Castro, and I started to realize that there was a kind of professional usefulness to opening up uh, Iberian studies and opening up Spanish and Portuguese to a wider array of languages, including not just Arabic, but also um, other languages of the Iberian Peninsula, so Catalan, Basque, um, which are particularly important for other periods. Um, so as I started to realize that I became kind of frustrated with the nature of some of that scholarship, I realized that um, much of the scholarship was interested in sort of identifying the, the influence of um, this Arabic literary history or um, Islamic uh, legal history or a kind of cultural history of Al-Andalus, e- examining the influence of these strands of Iberian culture on the Spanish and Latin context, um, on the one hand, or in the later period in the Renaissance, after there were no longer any Jews or Muslims uh, openly on the peninsula, trying to figure out what was, in what ways did the experience of conversion shape golden age Spanish literature in the 16th and 17th century? And I kind of hit a wall. I became really frustrated with this kind of scholarship. Um, And I tried to find a way to historicize the things that I was seeing in the modern scholarship, which is what led me to to what became my first book. It started off as my dissertation. Um, It it led me to think historically about some of the modern uh, scholarly and political debates that were happening on happening in the American Academy and elsewhere as well, to a certain extent. Um, and so in, in looking back and seeing how 16th century scholars use debates about the relationship between, um, for example, the, the Arabic literary history and Spanish literary history, or thought about the, the, the relationship of um, exchange and conflict 
between um, between Muslim and Christian princes. So thinking about how in the Renaissance already different communities of scholars were weighing in on these debates as a way in part of shaping their own um, institutional home. So that's, that's, I mean, it was a kind of long and winding path. It kind of sounds nice and neat, but of course it was incredibly messy <laughs> along the way. Right. Um, but that's, that's the story really of how I came to write this book and how I became interested in this comparative literary history of the Iberian Peninsula. So let's begin with the broad uh, question. Uh, the book is titled Parables of Coercion. Uh, could you share with our listeners, um, uh, and you really have dealt with a number of new archives, which will not be familiar to, to, to many people. So could you begin by telling us, broadly speaking, what is the central goal, argument, and the intervention that this book uh, tries to make? Sure. So I, uh, from the very beginning, I always had hoped that I'd be able to address a, a broad audience, a multiple, multidisciplinary audience of scholars who work on early modern Spain, but also scholars who might be interested in the history of religion uh, from other fields, other time periods. And so I, I, I see the, the book working on at least two levels. One is addressing that broader audience. And that audience, I think, would be interested in this argument about the relationship between tolerance and intolerance, and more broadly about how religion, the boundaries of religion, actually get defined. Um, and so on, on that point, the, the, you know, we have the sense that, that the discourse of tolerance can often serve reactionary or exclusionary ends. I mean, that's, that's maybe not a surprise, um, especially to people working on the modern period. Um, but I think more rarely examined is the ways in which a discourse of intolerance um, can paradoxically have, you know, I don't use the word in the book, but, but maybe in this sort of general conversation, we think about it as progressive ends, which is to say ways of making um, spaces for diverse communities, for multiplicity of languages um, and points of view. So, so, Part of what my goal is goal to do is to is to problematize that distinction between what counts as tolerance and what counts as intolerance, and to see how um, to see how scholars can use those discourses to surprising ends. And um, so that's that's the kind of general argument. The more specific argument for Hispanists and for people working in early modern Spain is that um, these these different communities of scholars. I talk about uh, people who study language, philologists as well as historians, canon lawyers, um, early modern economists, how each of these groups of scholars weighs in on debates about the Moriscos, debates about conversion from, uh, from Islam to Christianity in the 16th century as a way of shaping their own fields. Um, so in that sense, it's a, it's a disciplinary history. It's a history of the changing conventions and presuppositions of how scholars work in the 16th century. So, um, actually, Seth, could you uh, very briefly, you know, uh, since uh, NBIS link travels in the multiple spaces, could you very briefly tell us who are the Moriscos for the benefit of our listeners? Sure, sure. Yeah, that would be a, a great place to, to start, actually. So, um, the Moriscos are, uh, it's, a, it's a community of converts to Christianity from Islam um, that came into formation at the end of the 16th, beginning, the end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century. So this is so Granada. Granada is conquered by Christian forces um, in late 1491. It was turned over in 1492, 
Um, and for several decades afterwards, and in other parts of Spain, there are still um, still Muslims living under Christian rule. Um, and at a certain point in the in the early 16th century, uh, all of those communities are forcibly converted to Christianity. So the resulting Christian community of those conversions is known as Moriscos. Um, and so the Morisco period really runs from the turn of the century there until the early part of the 17th century, when this community of Christians um, is, again, forcibly not converted this time, but expelled from the peninsula. Um, so those are the Moriscos. And in some ways, it parallels the story of the Jews and the forcible conversions of the Jews. That community becomes known as conversos, um, with, the, with the distinction that, that the Jewish community did, by and large, um, a more thorough job of integrating into uh, old Christian society, whereas the Moriscos, for many decades, remained a kind of community apart. Um, and so, of course, there were Jews that were expelled and that left in 1492, the famous expulsion decree. Um, but over the previous hundred years, uh, many, many Jews had had become part of uh, Spanish society, whereas the Moriscos only a kind of upper crust elite managed the transition well. Mm-hmm. Now, much of your book uh, set is occupied by the saga of trying to nurture a certain uh, Christian orthodoxy among the Moriscos. And you also uh, discuss in, in, in tremendous detail and very fascinating ways the, the disputes and the debates among the learned elite uh, regarding the acceptability of coercion or the desirability of assimilation. And you argue that these debates uh, shape the way you know, categories like ritual and belief and conversion uh, were imagined and came to be thought about. Could you explain that line of your argument of uh, what were these learned disputes about and how did they uh, shape the ways in which these categories were imagined? Sure. So the, the, dis- the disputes shift over the course of the Morisco period. So um, at the moments of conversion and the several decades afterwards, there's this great anxiety about um, whether uh, coercion had actually happened. So when the Moris- when the when the last Muslims of Granada are um, are rounded up and brought to the central plaza, and there's a kind of um, flexible ceremony where holy water is sprinkled, some prayers are said. The question is, do they emerge as Christians? Um, and from 10, 20 years later, that's a, that's a, a difficult uh, canon law problem for Christian scholars because, um, on the one hand, uh, coercion is impermissible under canon law. And on the other hand, these, these conversions already happened. And to undo the conversions, to try and, through some sort of legalese, to undo them would risk the possibility of a second moment of conversion which just would muddle the water even further. So in, in the early decades of the 16th century, the debate is really about a first moment of conversion um, and whether it's uh, effective or not, right, as a ritual. As the century unfolds and there's this decision that that moment was indeed effective, theoretically, but pragmatically on the ground, there's all sorts of ways in which the Morisco community remains unassimilated and to a certain extent, still heterodox. Um, so there's a series of uh, councils and negotiations, each time, at least on paper, forcing this Morisco community to stop using 
Arabic, to stop dressing in this particular way, to stop part- participating in cultural practices that are associated with the Muslim community, but, um, but until that moment of regulation really didn't have any religious significance, something like going to the bathhouse um, or eating certain foods. So over the course of trying to regulate the cultural practices of these moriscos, cultural and linguistic practices, you have what I see as a kind of sacralization of culture. So at stake there in trying to regulate this community is an expansion of what counts as religious practice, at least for the purposes of the, of the Morisco community. Now, this, this expansion of religious practice served, um, served canon lawyers, served theologians quite well because it meant that they had a new claim on how questions about uh, imperial and religious identity both played out in the public sphere. So that's, that's the focus of the first, let's say, half of the book. Um, and over the course of this, the second half, I turn more towards questions about, specifically about language and history. So as, um, as it became clear that the projects of linguistic and cultural assimilation were actually not working, then there became anxiety about, well, what's the next step? How do we write the history of this period, which looks like a failure? It's a failed process of assimilation. Um, and so that, that failure in the end led to, uh, the proponents of expulsion winning, uh, winning over the crown and the proponents of a more, let's call it irenic approach, uh, people who wanted through various, uh, ways, both peaceful and actually coercive, uh, to integrate this community, they lost the battle and, um, and the Moriscos were finally expelled in the 17th century. So, so at that moment, there's this, there's this kind of retrospective pers- uh, look to try and figure out what went wrong, to try and figure out what's the effect, what's the possible effect and actual effect of expelling this large community. Um, and so at each moment in this, in this narrative arc of the Morisco period, uh, different communities of intellectuals, first canon lawyers, then philologists and other kinds of uh, textual scholars, and finally, historians weigh in on this issue, and in the course of so doing, they um, they seek to make a claim for their own fields on these debates. Now, there is a very interesting category that uh, you uh, uh, use and mobilize, uh, which you call uh, global fictions of conversion. Now, could you explain a bit what what do you mean by uh, global fictions of conversion? Sure. So, so these scholars who were concerned with the Moriscos had, uh, by this point, a, um, a kind of global canon, right? They had stories of miraculous uh, conversions from the New World. This is after the period when uh, Spanish explorers and conquerors are, um, are expanding throughout the Americas, and Portuguese explorers are passing into South Asia and Asia. And so there's this, this sense back home that some of the stories of conversion abroad might be helpful models for seeking the conversion and assimilation of this Morisco community back home. And I, I, I talk about global fictions of conversion because there is an awareness, especially among uh, critical historians of the 16th century, that, uh, that some of these stories are tall tales, right? They're self-serving stories of evangelical success, and um, and that 
that and a, a peninsular audience should be aware of that aspect of storytelling and be critical, right? To think about the realities on the ground in the peninsular context um, and not to be taken in by these, these the story of success and easy conversion abroad and to, to address the difficulties um, with clear eyes. Now, another uh, conceptual thread that really runs throughout uh, this uh, book is this epistemological dilemma that you talk about, which is uh, that on the one hand, there is this move to make uh, compulsory participation in the life of the church, and this compulsion was meant to eliminate any kind of heterodoxy, but you show that this actually had the effect of in uh, decipherability in terms of dis- in deciphering the distinction between orthodoxy and heresy, and which eventually led to the expulsion of such people from the church. So could you explain a bit what this dilemma uh, is about and how it was negotiated and tackled? Sure. So, so critical to this, this story of, of decide, how to decide who is a Christian, who's not a Christian, is coming to some sort of agreement, some sort of consensus about what, what counts as Christianity. And how do you measure a Christian subjectivity? Um, and the, the groups of scholars that most interest me are those, those counter-Reformation theologians and, and linguists and cultural historians who uh, recognize how difficult it is to measure someone's belief. So, so the Holy Office of the Inquisition, right, people who are trained to get people to convey their beliefs, even they realize that Oftentimes, it was simply impossible to get past those layers of language and expression and translation in order to understand what somebody actually believes. Others thought that even the individual was unsure what that person's beliefs was. Um, so given that, that epistemological double bind, the scholars that interest me were the ones who said, you know what, let's not try and unearth what people believe at least for the purposes of measuring what counts as Orthodox Christianity, and let's instead uh, observe what people are actually doing, right? So that's, that's part of the story that I mentioned earlier, the, the sacralization of culture. Um, if you want to uh, know that someone's a Christian, or at least subscribe to the fiction that what people do represents their Christianity, then you need to have a kind of expanded sense of ritual action, um, so not only attendance to church, not only participation in mass, not only um, uh, following certain catechism classes, but also speaking in a certain way, dressing in a certain way, etc. Um, and so there, there is a certain um, a certain dissimulation that's at stake here, and this is. This is a, a story, in some cases, of a kind of charitable dissimulation. So Christian scholars. Uh, some of whom I focus on at great length in my book, like Pedro de Valencia, uh, for example, or Ignacio Las Casas, are uh, willing to turn a blind eye in the short term to um, to Morisco dissimulation, which is to say, Moriscos who are pretending to be Christian but are continuing to practice and believe in secret their previous um, their previous Islam. So there are some Christian scholars who are willing to turn a blind eye to that dissimulation in the short term with the hope that in the long term, participation in Christian life, participation in Christian ritual will ultimately produce the orthodoxy um, that they have failed to, to, to instill from the get-go. 
Um, and so that that is those are kind of that's a kind of uh, a kind of um, conflict between two forms of dissimulation. And of course, the inquisitors, the more kind of conservative scholars who are seeking to root out Morisco heterodoxy, have their own strategies for dissimulation. Right? They're trying to catch the heretics in their lies. So, in some ways, one way to think about the stories I'm telling in the book is as a as a as a um, a conflict and balance among these competing models of dissimulation. Um, and one effect of this mul- multiplicity of dissimulations is that it becomes, it becomes extremely difficult to ultimately uh, decide what rituals and words and actions actually mean. So, were, so we mentioned indecipherability. That's what I mean, that, be, that these, these rituals of the moriscos, their participation in church ritual, their... Um, their, their cultural habits uh, become, in a certain way, illegible. And the challenge for Christian scholars is to figure out a way to render that illegibility in some ways, um, in some ways interpretable, understandable. Now, in the, the chapter four of your uh, book, uh, the Heterodoxy, um, or Translating Heterodoxy, uh, you talk about a really fascinating episode of uh, a moment when these Arabic uh, texts were discovered in Granada that came to be known as the lead books. Uh, am I pr- pronouncing that? Is it lead, lead, lead books, right? Lead books, yeah. Yeah, lead, yeah, lead books. books, yeah. So could you tell us a bit about what are uh, the lead books? And you show here to uh, further this uh, thread of uh, uh, sanctifying or sacralizing uh, culture. Here you talk about sacralizing a certain body of texts and you show uh, ways in which the way in which these texts were translated, edited and interpreted, there was a way in which they were turned into scripture, what you call the invention of scripture. So, so tell us a bit about what are these lead books? Uh, uh, tell us an account of how they were discovered and then how they were sanctified and turned into scripture through this process of translation, edition, uh, editing and uh, interpretation. Sure. So, I mean, so these, these lead books are really fascinating documents, and there's been a lot of uh, specialized scholarship on them, over, the, especially over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, th- they are a series of circular lead tablets that have Arabic etching on them that were discovered in the hills outside of Granada um, in the 15, over the course of the 1590s. And um, once translators and scholars got their hands on them and were able to... Um, to read them, it became clear that the books purported to be the narrative of a, an ancient early Christian saint. Um, and so they pretended to be gospel texts, basically. Um, and, of course, the Granadan local community was very happy to discover these ancient Christian texts because for many, many centuries it had been a Muslim city. And so there was great local excitement about the possibility of Granada becoming a kind of pilgrimage site and being great pride, right, in this early Christian local history. Um, But it soon became clear, and and the learned Arabists and classicists of the period uh, weighed in on these texts, and it became clear that they were forgeries uh, for a variety of reasons. There were inconsistencies in the Arabic um, there were historical inconsistencies, and um, the by and large, the learned community decided that they were forgeries. Now, they were just discovered alongside some relics, um, which is which is as you'll see in a second is important to the story. So, the learned community more or less decided they were forgeries, and 
at the same time, popular Grenadan piety was at a high. People were really excited. They started pilgrimage sites. There's the foundation of an abbey, um, a whole kind of institutional structure that grows out of this popular piety around the discovery of the lead books. Um, and so from that, uh, from that popular piety, there grew a kind of secondary scholarly interest and, there was a major effort to, as you pointed out earlier, to sacralize these texts, to make them, to make them um, comprehensible as Christian scripture. So what do you need to do that? First of all, you need to make them into uh, either Latin or Spanish. You need to make it, translate the text from Arabic, which is no, no easy undertaking given, given the, the difficult, you know, the, the Arabic writing is already uh, unique. It's etched, so it's angular. It looks very strange even to somebody who is knowledgeable in Arabic. Um, you need to make them books, right? Uh, you need to turn these texts into something that could fit inside a kind of printed Bible so that it would make sense as part of the Christian canon. And so, so that process uh, ultimately fails. Um, the, the Pope finally declared, well, nearly 100 years later, the discoveries to be forgeries. And it's likely... Uh, scholars now agree that they were probably forged by some of their early Morisco translators, in fact. Um, the, Morisco, the, the Morisco forgers and translators were trying to imagine through these texts a kind of harmonious, a kind of Mediterranean religious harmony. They emphasized a Christianity that was uh, more open to Islamic iconography uh, and that the Moriscos would have found more palatable. So they emphasized figures such as Mary, for example, uh, that are found in both traditions. There's some, some of the Arabic language echoes some Quranic language. So there's this real effort to imagine a Morisco-friendly Christianity. And ultimately, the institutional structure of Rome uh, wasn't convinced and declared the text forgeries. Um, however, given the, the, um, the, the laws of authentication of texts and relics in the aftermath of the Council of Trent, it was the local church, it was the Granada church that had authority to decide on the authenticity of the relics. So, so the, the, the upshot of this long process of de- learned debate um, over the nature of these texts and the relics is that the, the, the texts are declared forgeries, but the relics are declared authentic. And to this day, there's, there's something called the Abbey of Sacramonte, which is where the lead books, it's on the hillside behind the Alhambra where the lead books were discovered. And there's uh, there's still pious pious pilgrimages and celebrations at this abbey, celebrating these relics, even though the 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 texts themselves have been declared inauthentic. Um, so what really interests me in this whole story is that there's a kind of openness and a can an awareness among scholars that are both defending and attacking the texts and the relics that that holiness is produced conventionally, institutionally. There's a series of um, processes that occur in order to render a text canonical. And you see the defenders of the text, um, sometimes cynically, uh, marshalling the power at their disposal to, uh, to manage that process. And you see critics of the text uh, trying to marshal their kind of humanistic uh, different kind of cynicism to say, 
no, these are, these are forgeries and we shouldn't be taken in by them. And so to see that process at work is to, I think, to get a, a, a sense of how holiness is conventionally produced. And, and part of what was so surprising for me, and I think it's surprising for scholars who are less familiar with Spain and even scholars who, uh, who spend their lives studying Spain, is the candidness, right? The, just the, the comfort that these even theologians have with, um, with the, the conventionality and the institutional nature of these, um, of these processes for, for producing holiness and orthodoxy. Now, in, in what ways, uh, to, to talk about another uh, theme that you uh, discuss in your book, and you mentioned earlier about um, the, the, the relationship between uh, narratives of Morisco integration or lack thereof and how it impacted language and history, right? And history writing. So in relation to that, in what ways when early modern authors wrestled with and meditated on the failure of Morisco integration, how did that uh, generate the conditions to think more carefully and interrogate uh, the very craft of history writing and different aspects of of uh, historical writing? Could you uh, tell us a bit about that uh, aspect of uh, your discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that I, that I study in the latter chapters of the book. Um, and it gets at this problem of, of this anxiety over how to write the story of a failure. Um, the court historians and chroniclers of the period were accustomed to, to adding each year uh, to a kind of stable corpus of great feats of the monarchy, adding each year uh, the new feats, right? The new great acts of the soldiers and monarchs. Um, and it's during this period that you start to see more local histories. So you have, um, you have, you have historians based far away from court and writing a more kind of critical history. So they're, they're drawing on classical models. Tacitus, for example, was a a famous model for critical historians of the early modern period. Um, but even so, you see someone like the humanist and historian Diego Hortado de Mendoza, who's based in Granada, you see him struggle to find the language um, that's still recognizable as history to his audiences, uh, but that is not celebratory, that is a more critical version of, uh, and his focus is this, this war from the 1560s and 1570s, in Granada, which was a kind of final moment of uprising by the Morisco community, who was increasingly angry about the, these regulations that I've been talking about, regulations on their language and dress, etc. Um, and so, Hortado Mendoza and other historians of the moment, some, some of them participated in the war and saw the violence, um, struggled to find a way to tell that story. And to do that, they needed to test what counted as history writing in the moment. They needed to find a way to... Uh, to not not have the narrative run towards a kind of um, happy conclusion, even though the Morisco rebellion was put down, given uh, the terrible effects on the local economy, the great uh, the, the great um, suffering by the Morisco community and by Christian soldiers, and so it's 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 looking back not only on that that particular conflict from the 1560s and 1570s, but the entire history of the Morisco period that preceded it and that led to that, that moment of conflict um, and trying to find a way to, to tell that story. Uh, Seth, as a, a final substantive um, uh, question, um, let us uh, talk a bit about the 
conceptual and political stakes of this project in relation to the present and how we think about early modern Spain and Christian-Muslim relations and so on. And as you uh, point out, you know, in the beginning of your book also, that uh, oftentimes you're arrested in these very facile binaries of tolerance, intolerance, inclusion, exclusion, and so on. And one of the things that I see your book doing is by giving us, giving us such a detailed picture of the early modern context, you've really... Um, You've, you've really punctured uh, the coherence of these of these kinds of binaries. But let me have you talk a bit about how you see as the, uh, the, the political and conceptual intervention that you see this project making in terms of how we imagine this past uh, in relation to Christian-Muslim relations and misconceptions about the Inquisition and, and, and discourses of tolerance, intolerance, and so on. So an open-ended question. Yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a great and challenging question. Um, well, you know, you hear you hear bandied about in the news these days. Oftentimes, um, you'll hear uh, talk of fundamentalism. You'll hear talk of of people who are committed to religion uh, for whatever reasons in whatever ways as being medieval in a certain way, for example. Um, and and that's a you know it's a way of criticizing. It's a way of making a, a modern political criticism by drawing on some kind of historical stereotype. And part of what's so interesting about Spain in relationship to this this story of the Middle Ages, is that in Spain, the, the usual historical account is inverted. So that you have in the Middle Ages, under um, when the peninsula was mostly under Islamic rule, you have this story about, um, about great flourishing, right? Great cultural flourishing, uh, maybe not, not as intense uh, religious conflict or conflict that's political, but maybe not necessarily explicitly religious all the time. And over the last, you know, 50 years, say, scholars have, have developed a much more nuanced view of that Iberian Middle Ages um, to say that this, this story of convivencia, as it's called, this getting along, is, it was actually a quite violent one. So my, my story is really the opposite in, in, the, in the early modern period, is that this, this moment that's famous in Spain as a kind of inquisitorial moment, when the rest of Europe is heading towards, fast towards the Enlightenment, let's say, that's a kind of, a kind of simple but common story, that even, even, even Inquisition um, can be employed to, to surprisingly progressive uses, surprising um, tools for opening up modes of scholarship, for rethinking the boundaries between um, different communities. So in that way, just as a kind of general point, Spain is unusual, and it's Spain's both unusualness and also the fact that um, the story of Golden Age Spain, the story of uh, Golden Age in the Middle Ages of Spain, and the story of Inquisition is well known even to a kind of general reader. So, by turning some of those assumptions on their head, um, I hope that people will see that when when we use language like fundamentalism, I mean, there's there's there's, there's maybe nothing more fundamentalist than the Spanish Inquisition. Um, that we might we might seek also to historicize. Um, contemporary geopolitical debates where where the question of religious actors is equally at stake um, to see that there's always there's always local motivations there's local political and institutional histories that help to shape the way people act why people act the way they do and that sometimes our our broad portraits um, are dangerous uh, because they 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 help us to stereotype rather than to understand. 
So as we are approaching the end of our time, uh, Seth, uh, could you share with us a bit uh, what's the next project where you're working on these days? Yeah, so I, so it's 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 fun and also overwhelming to start something new, um, but I'm hoping to continue my interest in in archives and early printed books, material culture, and also the history of the disciplines. This 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 transformation of um, of scholarship and knowledge in the early modern period by thinking a little bit about uh, some other disciplines that didn't play such a big role in this book, um, specifically cartography, so map making and bibliography or collection. Um, and there are, there are a couple of interesting episodes in early mo- the early modern Western Mediterranean, let's say, where uh, well-known cartographers and collectors are doing both, both work, both jobs simultaneously. And I have the sense uh, yet to be proven, uh, but I do have the sense that, that, that these individuals uh, bibliographic practices, the way that they organize their knowledge and their cartographic practices, the way they imagine both local and global space, um, transform each other, shape each other. Um, so a couple of episodes, one will be hopefully in Seville. There's, a, there's the illegitimate second son of Christopher Columbus. Hernando Colon had his, his big collection there. Um, I think that the, the story of Escorial, the, the major uh, royal library and monastery founded in the late 16th century will be part of the story. Um, and then there, there's um, there's a famous library of the the Sultan of uh, the Saudi Sultan uh, Mulay Zidan, which was much of which was lost at sea and ended up in the Escorial. Um, so there too, there's a story of uh, bibliographic and let's say cartographic intrigue. So I think that that's where I'm headed uh, for next project. But you have to check back. Hopefully, it won't take ten years. <laughs> Uh, Parables of Coercion, Conversion and Knowledge at the End of Islamic Spain, uh, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Thank you so much, Seth, uh, for your time, for this wonderfully rich uh, book and for this intellectual feast, both in terms of your writing and also now your very articulate uh, responses to some of these questions. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Seth Kimmel about his book, Parables of Coercion. Thank you so much for listening and please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Thank you, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.